Today's reading is Nehemiah chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of hearts. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah, where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, May I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make burns for the gates of the citadel by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal, well, and the dung gates, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gates and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gates. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, 
you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic rights to it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Very nice to see you. I can almost see you at the back of a church. Very good. And uh, good morning and welcome to anyone watching online. We're glad that you are. Let's pray together that God would speak to us from his word. Father God, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you that they're written for our encouragement and to give us hope. And we pray today that you would do that. You'd draw us closer to you. You'd encourage us. And you give us a glimpse of what's possible when you get to work with your people. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing our journey through Nehemiah. And last week we saw, we were introduced to him. Uh, we saw that he is a wine waiter, that he's living in Persia, and that a group of traveling people came by and he asked them what life was like back in his home city of Jerusalem. And he was told, well, the people there are living in disgrace. The walls have been broken down, destroyed by fire. And we looked at the impact that this news had on Nehemiah and how it was put on his heart that this was a situation he simply couldn't live with. He had to do something about it. And so we pick up the story from there. And I'm calling, calling this talk Pivotal Points in Building God's Kingdom. And I want to begin with a story. It's a true story. That in 1666, after the Great Fire of London had destroyed very significant areas of the city, Sir Christopher Wren was commissioned to build no less than 52 new churches. And it's said that late one afternoon on one of these sites, Sir Christopher Incognito uh, walked amongst the labourers in the rubble. And he stopped alongside different workmen and working groups. And he asked them a simple question. So what, what are you doing? And uh, the first person he came to said, well, I I'm shaping these stones. And the next person said, well, I'm digging drainage ditches. And another one said, well, I'm clearing rubble. But when he came alongside a worker who was pushing a heavy wheelbarrow full of what looked like junk, he got the reply, I'm building London a magnificent cathedral. And I like that. I like that perspective. Because it sometimes seems to us, I think, individually, and even as a church, that if someone came alongside us, if Jesus came alongside us and said, what are you doing? We could reduce it to something pretty minor and inconsequential. But I hope some of us would reply, we're building your kingdom. That's what we're doing. The walls of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day and God's kingdom in our day just simply don't build themselves. They require all sorts of things to happen. God's kingdom requires all sorts of things to happen. And today in this talk, we're going to look at a number of the key points, which if you like, are crossing points where you could turn back or you can go forward. They are pivotal depending on what happens. And the very first point is by far the most important point, and probably it's where most projects fall apart. The very, very first thing that has to happen 
is we have to realise that God calls us to him with a purpose in mind. When God calls to people and steps into their lives, it's never to say, and now just sit at my feet. There's always a purpose. Yes, it does involve sitting at his feet. It does involve enjoying his company. It does involve basking and radiating in his forgiveness and his love, etc., etc. But there's always a purpose that comes with the call. It's not only to come close and enjoy friendship. And actually, churches like ours, um, that in some ways pride ourselves on the goal of evangelism, of sharing our faith, I think we can forget that. We can forget that the purpose and God's goal is not that we just introduce our friends to Jesus and then they can sit down and say, great, I'm saved. It's, that's the starting point of a whole new adventure. That's the beginning place from which we can equip one another and really see change come. So Jesus said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Why? to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And we're commissioned. We're commissioned by the King of Kings to go and bear fruit for him. And confusion at this point does no one any good. Jesus expressed the purpose of his life in so many different ways, so many different ways. So it said of him in Luke's Gospel that Jesus came, why, to seek and save the lost. Or Mark would say of Jesus, that the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or John will say in his first letter, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And John will also recall that Jesus says, I've come to bring life to the full. Now, the point of me rattling that lot off is to say, Jesus had a purpose. And he's entrusted us with a purpose too, hasn't he? He's given his disciples, his followers, a mission, something to accomplish. And the reason I say this point is the most important point, and without it, really, we just fall flat and, and we say goodnight to any achievements in God's kingdom, is leadership really matters and we're all leading in this department. And the wrong leadership leads people astray. So it's distressing that uh, within my lifetime, I remember reading the autobiography of a previous Archbishop of Canterbury, in which he says, the chief mission of the Church of England is, wait for it, the maintenance of tranquility. And I want to say, wrong. You know, Jesus never said, come to me, all of you who are laboured and heavy laden, and, and we can enjoy tranquility together. He just never said that. It, it's that's, you can't write that above the church as the mission of the church. It's not God's mission. Now, it, it, I'm not having a bad hair day with bishops, and I love our bishop, but an, a previous bishop that was over me in Ely, not the current bishop of Ely, when I interviewed him just before his retirement, I said to him, which seemed a fair cop question, what, what would you like to be remembered for? And he said, I want to be remembered as a safe pair of hands. And again, I have to say, wrong. Jesus never said, come to me and be a safe pair of hands. And this is incredibly important because if we don't get God's purpose in our lives, God's vision for our lives, 
we're leading people up the garden path in a wrong way. Now, what do I mean by vision? Vision, in this sense, is, is God's preferred future. It's a picture in your mind's eye or in your heart of what it is that God wants to see happen. And when you get God's vision, it, it captures you as much as you capture it. Let me give you a, an example that puts it well from Jackie Pullinger's life. Some of you will have read the book Chasing a Dragon. And that's an exciting book, and it tells of her story of how she ends up in the walled city of Hong Kong. And in a, in a different book, not that one, she describes the same story just slightly more concisely, and I'm going to read you a paragraph of it. She writes this um, just after she arrived in Hong Kong's walled city. I loved the dark city. I loved wandering down the narrow lanes, which were like some exaggerated stage set. It upset me to see 12 or 13-year-old prostitutes and to learn that these girls were not free, having been sold by parents and boyfriends. I saw thousands of poor people living in one-room dwellings. Many were so crammed that they had to sleep in shifts because they couldn't all lie down at the same time. And I saw some who still lived with pigs, neither able to see the light. I loved this dark place. I hated what was happening in it, but I wanted to be nowhere else. It was almost as if I could already see another city in its place, and that city was ablaze with light. It was my dream. There was no more crying, no more death and pain. The sick were healed, addicts were set free, the hungry were filled. There were families for orphans, home for the homeless, and new dignity for those who had lived in shame. I had no idea how to bring this about, but with visionary zeal imagined introducing a walled city to the one who could change all this, Jesus. And that's just a, a good example of a template of how God can put on our hearts something as if it's already been done. That's what I mean by vision, God's preferred future. And right through the scriptures, you can see example after example after example of this. So, for example, Moses has this unlikely vision of God's preferred future, that God's people should be set free from slavery and captivity, doesn't he? And the, the whole of the book of Exodus reflects on how that's achieved. And when God's people lose the point of God's calling, it's calamitous. It's calamitous. We're told in scripture, without a vision, the people perish. Well, actually, what they tend to do is go around in circles and get nowhere. So Nehemiah, as we see him at the beginning of this chapter, he is absolutely captured by this vision. So we're told in chapter one, we saw it last week, that he mourned and fasted and wept and prayed. And if you mourn and fast and weep and pray in God's presence and you're talking to God about something over and over and over and over and over again, eventually it's going to show in your life. Because Jesus tells us out of the overflow of our heart, the mouth speaks. And so I think it was totally inevitable the day would come and it would be a dangerous day when Nehemiah would be in the company of the king. And what we probably don't know is that in those days, it sounds a bit ridiculous to us, but the servants around the king were required to be happy, to look happy. And Nehemiah's guard slips and his face is sad. And the king says to him, what's up? Why is it that you're, you're cast down today? 
And it's a very dangerous moment because Nehemiah knows that his destiny now lies in the hand of a king. And he comes up with a canny answer. He says, well, king, how can I not be sad when the city where my forebears lie is lying in ruins? It's a canny answer because he doesn't say the word Jerusalem. He conceals that, but he's tactful speak to say it. And the king asked, verse 4, so what is it that you want? And then in verse 5, Nehemiah states out the vision that he has, and he puts his cards on the table. I want to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Now, friends, this is one pivotal point where we can all fall down. It's not so easy sometimes to speak out what Jesus has put on your heart to do, is it? Um, I can remember when I was trained to be a vicar, you used to get sent off for what they called a week of mission. We used to subtitle it Mission Impossible sometimes. And um, you'd have to stay in the house of church members and nine times out of ten, they hadn't really been told what you were there for or what you were doing. They'd just been told, got a group of students who are coming to this part of the world, would you like to have them to stay? And one particular time I was sent on one of these missions to Liverpool and I was with a friend of mine uh, he happens to run a, a very significant church just down the road. But at that time, we were just students together. And we were having supper <coughs> with the man and his wife who were kindly having us to stay. And sure enough, in the middle of this rather formal supper, a man who I think was some bigwig in the legal profession said, so what are you here in Liverpool to do? And he said this looking at my friend. And my friend said, oh, well, you know, Liverpool's a very interesting place and there's so many things to see in Liverpool and we've not seen them before. And the chap wasn't really fobbed off by that. And so he said, well, yes, sure. So what, what else are you here to do? And he said, well, you know. And he waffled and waffled and waffled and waffled. And eventually I could bear it no more. So I just said, we're here to talk to people about Jesus. And, and you could have cut the atmosphere with a knife. But we were. It was true. And I, was, I wasn't being insensitive. It, it, we were asked the question, what are you here for? Just like Nehemiah was asked the question, what is it you want to do? And eventually, you have to fess up. You have to put it out there. Eventually, if you go to work, someone's going to ask you, there will be an opportunity, and you have a split-second moment where you confess up, yes, you are a follower of Christ. Someone says to you tomorrow, you have a good weekend, and you have a chance to say, yes, I had a great weekend. They say, well, why? What was good about it? And you could say anything you like about how you've spent the last hour on a Sunday morning, or you could cop out completely. You know, you get these nanosecond chances, don't you, to make a difference. Well, you have to own the vision. You have to be prepared to speak the vision. Find a way of talking about it. And then you need to do this as a pivotal point, not just know it and own it, but you have to stick to it. If we're going to be faithful to God in our lifetime, it's going to take a huge amount of tenacity and grit. I am certain that Nehemiah knew that on, in some perspectives, what he was asking to happen and seeing happen in his dreams, if it had been a feasibility study, I guess a few concepts and ideas that have been more bonkers. It looks so unlikely to be fulfilled. It's a big ask. And any vision that is really from God is going to be a big ask. In fact, if you think you can achieve God's vision, through your own resources and your own resourcefulness, one of two things is going on. Either your vision is too small 
or you've got a grossly exaggerated sense of your own capabilities. Because the way God puts vision together always, always requires faith and trust in him. And obedience is what's required from step to step. So let's just think for a minute, sort of, let's just pluck out of the air a few areas where St. Michael's has got a vision. Say, the area of evangelism, the idea of sharing our faith. I rather like the fact that in my previous church, a previous vicar, a chap called Charles Simeon, had carved into a part of his, um, the pulpit like that, uh, a sentence from John's Gospel, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Just to remind himself that the whole point of mission of the church was it should be a place where people come to see Jesus. And I think it's worth just letting yourself dream about that for a while. Wouldn't it be fantastic if this church, this building, becomes a place where people know they can bring their friends from week to week and they will reliably encounter Jesus Christ, both through the word of God and the spirit of God, the presence of God and the worship of God. That would be good, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be great to see people queuing up, bringing their friends? And then you ask yourself the question, so what has to change for that to happen? And we'll be, be ready to make the changes for that to happen. Because by any kind of count, it's not happening really at the moment. I mean, we saw someone a couple of weeks ago, I think two people gave their lives to Christ. That's great. I, I rejoice in that. But I'm just doing a self-audit. Lord, there's so much that's got to happen, but it's a good dream to have. And it's part of the Great Commission, isn't it? And then here's another part of our, our vision. Jesus left his church with, with a strap line, a logo. He said people should meet us and they should say to themselves, see how they love one another. I've always thought that's fairly testing. It's not most people's experience of most churches. Um, most people who belong to a lot of churches end up saying, see how they get across one another. But Jesus says, People ought to come into his community and say, see how they love one another. And it takes no imagination at all for us to see why that's valuable. You can walk from this church in any direction and stand on a street corner and watch people and you'll see lonely people come by and you'll see broken people come by and you'll see people without hope come by and you'll see people who long for friendship, people who long for acceptance, people who long to be liked and loved. And we're the people that God is raising up to do that together. And that's actually, you know, is a good work in progress. That's exactly so many people's story at St. Michael's. And that's why we have small groups and so much else. But it's challenging, isn't it? And especially after lockdown. Because lockdown has done funny things to people and all of us. And we're less extrovert, if we ever were, than we used to be. We're less confident than we used to be. We're less hospitable than we used to be. And this isn't getting at anyone. It's just speaking as it is. But it means that aspect of the ministry God's put on our heart is very, very valid. And then another part of the vision would be that we should be helping one another to get to know God's ways. You know, part of what we say we exist for is help people come to Christ. I've talked about that. Help people love to learn, I've talked about that, and learn to love, I've talked about that. But, you know, how are people ever going to make wise decisions for their lives and in their work and in their families if they don't know what pleases God? Because that's what a wise decision is. 
We, we are blessed at St. Michael's in so many ways to have lots and lots of people who know that in the world's eyes they've made it and they are successful. And yet all of us, all of us need to know that this is God's definition of success. Jeremiah chapter 9, let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice and righteousness on earth, for in these things I delight. And you're not born knowing what pleases the Lord, but you're born again as you come to know it and see it. But we need to help one another. As I reflected on that little list, I thought, gosh, it sounds a bit activist. You know, it sounds like I'm just asking for busy, busy, busy. So I thought I'd throw in one more thing just to um, make sure as a countermeasure to that. It also, we do exist and part of our vision is to learn how to worship the Lord together. And I love the fact that uh, Charles Simeon, the chap I was referring to, had that written in his pulpit. He was definitely a scholar. He, he wrote a commentary on every single book of the Bible. He was definitely an influential key player around the world in Christian ministry. But on his deathbed, literally on his deathbed, as he spent days languishing, waiting to die, eventually someone crept up to his bed and asked this extraordinarily distinguished man the question that everyone wanted to know, which was, Charles, what are you thinking? And he said, I'm not thinking. I'm enjoying. And he was enjoying the presence of God. And actually, that, that has to be foundational to our vision before we do anything, is to live in God's presence and enjoy it. Well, God's vision is always contested. I wish it wasn't, but it is. Everybody who's responded to God's vision in Scripture finds that they're up against it. I can't think of anyone who has a downhill ride the whole way, whether it's Noah, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Nehemiah, to every single disciple and Jesus. And at every point of contest is a pivotal point where you could turn back or you can go forward. There are all sorts of fears that crop up the moment that we decide to align ourselves with God's purposes, either individually or as a family or as a church. There's the fear of rejection. You know, what will others think of you? And will they think you're nuts? And what happens if you fail? There's the fear of opposition that will come your way. We're not going to look at it now, but we got introduced in verse 10 to Sanballat and Tobiah, who are troublemakers from beginning to end. And um, we'll look at them later on. Some people won't like the fact that you come to promote the welfare of the Lord. And then pretty high on the list is the fear of failure because your resources won't be enough. And not just your human resources in yourself, but you need stuff to do God's work. You know, it takes money always. And here, here's one of the things you learn very quickly, and Nehemiah learned it before he even finished praying in chapter one. We need to pray for God's favour. We need to pray for God's hand of blessing upon us. Because if it's not there, the whole thing stops in its tracks. As I said, Nehemiah knew that his resources were nothing like enough. 
But it didn't stop him. What it meant was he just prayed, 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 Lord, give me favor, give me success in the eyes of the king. And that's exactly what happened, isn't it? Did you notice that? That amazingly, King Artaxerxes says, so what is it you want? And he says, well, here's what I want. He said, I prayed to the God of heaven. And then I said, this is what I want. I want leave of absence. I, I, I want letters of safe conduct. I, I want actually also to be provided with timber and resources so I can make the beams of the gates. And for the icing on the cake, I want the cavalry and army officers to come with me for protection. And he gets it. It's a lot. Why? It's God's favour. And some commentators say, well, look, hang on a minute. It's inherently unlikely. Why, why would a foreign king, not a Jew, give all of that for a project he's got nothing to gain from? Well, I'll tell you why exactly. Because, as it says in Proverbs, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he directs it like a watercourse, whatever he pleases, to do whatever he pleases. And it's absolutely right. You know, if, if Nehemiah hadn't had God's favour, it could have been collapse of a project. It could have been off with his head for looking so sad, not his three weeks leave or whatever it was. And it, it's been my privilege to see this principle act again and again and again. As I've said, God's vision is always so big, it, it, it can't be accomplished in your own strength. That's how God wants it to be. You have to trust him. And when he starts to provide, it, you still have to go on trusting him, little by little, little by little, every step of the way, so that you live to faith another day. That's the Christian walk. One day at a time. And St. Michael's is no different. You know, as we go forward, now we're coming out of lockdown, we're regrouping and, and we're reimagining what God wants at St. Michael's. And the six o'clock service is one of those things. It is an entirely new venture. We have no idea who's going to walk through the door. At the moment, it's on every fortnight. We want it to get to a place where we can do it every week, but for the moment, it's every fortnight. And I would say it's a hand of God's favour that a church like Soul Survivor Watford comes into partnership with us. I, you can't make that happen. There's absolutely nothing in it for Soul Survivor Watford but they're giving their resources. It, it's the hand of God's favour that the wardens, the standing committee, the PCC all say, yes, yes, let's be generous with our building. Let's take the risk. Let's see what will happen. And it's going to cost us. It'll cost us financially. Um, it'll cost us to all sorts of things that we now have to do to upgrade, to welcome people and make this building fit for purpose. It looks very good, but actually half the screens don't work. And now we've got more people coming in. They want to sit behind the pillars where in the past no one's ever had to see. Well, it'll have to happen. We need to get the internet working in all the offices. It's going to cost money. Of course it will. But we shouldn't give up before we start because if people see God's hand at work and he grips them, it'll be just like this. God will provide. God will provide. Here's another pivotal thing to note as... Uh, as we go forward, God's vision is a call to a life of sacrifice more often than it is a call to a life of stardom. This is hard, guys. This is hard. Nehemiah 
was enjoying life in Persia. He had a prominent position. People would have stood up when he entered the room. He had fame, he had fortune, he had his pension, no doubt, he had job security. And it cost him a great deal to walk away from all of that and to heed God's call. And yet, it was the best investment of a lifetime, wasn't it? And I don't think anyone has actually gone out of their way and given to God's work, both in terms of time and energy and emotion and everything else, and regretted it on their deathbed. And there is a principle here that you get what you pray for and you pray for what you pay for. And I, I think it's good to hold those two things together. You know, I, I noticed many years ago, many, many years ago, uh, when for the first time in my life, I think, I put my hand in my pocket and wrote out a standing order to support a member of this very small congregation I was part of who was going abroad to do some Christian work. And for the first time, I, I, I <clears throat> was giving some money away do you know, my prayer life went up for that person. It followed the direction of my resources. And I think there is a sort of virtuous circle here. You get what you pray for. Well, you don't always get what you pray for. But you do pray for what you pay for. And as I come towards the close, there's a pivotal point in the whole book of Nehemiah is in chapter 2. And you could rush past it and, and not see it, but it, it's... In some ways, I think it's almost the most important verse in the whole book. When Nehemiah set off from Persia, he was clear what his purpose was, yes. He had provisions and he had protection, yes. But two things were yet to happen, and they couldn't happen until he arrived. He had to formulate a plan, and he had to enlist local help. And we're told that for three days, under the cover of darkness and night, without telling anyone what he was doing, he went out with just on, on one mount on his own and he inspected what was going on. And then a key, key moment arrives for him. And he gathers together the residents of Jerusalem. And in verse 17 and 18, he says this, I said, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burnt with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and will no longer be in disgrace. And I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me, and they said, let us start rebuilding. So they began a good work. And it always slightly makes, I stop to gasp at that point, because I think to myself, what would have happened if the people had said, you're on your own, Nehemiah, we don't fancy this project? I, I guess it would have been a very short book. But that isn't what happened. And what I see has to happen if we're going to progress God's mission is this. We need to see together something needs to change. If the people of Jerusalem had said, no, 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 we like life as it is, game over. If, if we as a church, and many congregations have done this, say to themselves, no, 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 we like life as it is, it's commission over. That church becomes a club. You have to see that you're willing for change to happen. That was the first thing, and change needs to happen. Secondly, you need to see and believe the hand of God is in this enterprise. Nehemiah said, I told them of the gracious favour of my Lord. We need to see that the hand of God, his favour, rests upon us. And thirdly, we have to volunteer ourselves. 
We have to count ourselves in. I, I began with a story, true story of Sir Christopher Wren, didn't I? And I want to end with another true story. But this isn't 310 years ago, however long it is. It's 310 years later after the Sir Christopher Wren story. And to give credit where credit's due, this story comes to me from the mouth of Mark Beard, who's a member of our congregation. And uh, it's a story that his, a true story of his brother, Glenn, who uh, in the early 1980s was a junior architect. And he was working on the new Lloyds building in the city, the one that looks like an oil refinery from the outside, designed by Richard Rogers. And part of Glenn's job was to make a journey down to the Isle of Portland in Dorset, where Portland Stone comes from, to meet the quarry master at this place and to choose stones for the building. And the quarry master said, said to him, well, look, I'll leave you to your own devices. I'll come back uh, or you come and find me when you're, when you're done and tell me which stones you want. And um, Glenn went around the yard, obviously pretty big, and at the end of a few hours, he, he went and found the quarry master and he, he took him outside and said, um, well, I, I'd like those stones, please. And they were stones, you know, stuck away, way, way, way in the back of beyond. <clears throat> they didn't look like they'd been moved for years. And the quarry master said, well, I'm really sorry. Of all, all the stones that we've got here, they're the ones you can't have. And he said, well, why is that? And he said, well, you can't. They're, they're reserved. And a bit miffed, he said, well, who are they reserved for? He said, they're reserved by Sir Christopher Wren. And they were. Christopher Wren had had them put aside in case they were needed for St. Paul's at some time in the future. And I like that because that story links with the first one. And it's for me to say, friends, Jesus hasn't put you and me on reserve. That is not his plan. He didn't say, come to me and I'll cover you with aspic and I'll put preservative and dust sheets on you and you just stay put and we can be a monument together. That's just never part of his plan. But he calls us to him and he fills us with his spirit and he gives his heart into our heart and says, now come on, let's build together. Isn't that it? That's it. And, and then we can get to work and we can join like the people of Nehemiah's day and say, come, let us build together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came into the world to save us to make a new relationship with God possible. But thank you, Lord, that you also commissioned us, not just to come to you to enjoy it, but to go in your name, to share this news. And Lord, thank you for the truth in scripture. So when we look at this book of Nehemiah, it's just not easy what he's asked to do. And it doesn't just happen um, without breaking sweat. And thank you that we can see parallels between his obedience to you and the obedience that's required of us. And thank you for reminding us today that you call us, yes, to enjoy your friendship and your love and forgiveness, but also to be part of your team, ready to be obedient to you and say, yes, Lord. And thank you that as you look at St. Michael's, you actually see a far brighter future than any of us is capable of conceiving because you always do far more than we ask or imagine. 
But we pray that the time will come where we'll pinch ourselves and say, look what the Lord has done. It's so much greater than the sum of the parts. It's so many more people have come to know you, Lord Jesus. And the quality of life is so much greater than we could ever have known. And worship is at the heart of all that we do. So be the lifter of our heads today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.